It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, there's a reason you listen to this podcast, and it's not just my sparkling personality or bitingly devastating humor. It's because you get news and analysis here before it congeals into the media conventional wisdom. If you have been listening yesterday or to Friday's podcast, and we did a bit of this Sunday on Media Buzz, you would have gotten the gist of what is the lead story today in the New York Times about the unvaccinated. Uh, You know, I've been doing this long enough that I can kind of see little pieces of the puzzle and see around the corner and and I can know, well, in a couple days, this is going to be hot. So I'm going to jump on it now. Now, sometimes things surprise me like everybody else. And and I'll get into more of this modest (laughs) assessment, uh, the story I'm talking about in a moment. But first, uh, and a lot going on in the Olympics as well. Uh, Not a great uh, 24 to 48 hours for the United States of America. But first, I want to talk about Paul McCartney. You, if you saw Media Buzz on Sunday, I did a little thing at the end about this remarkable Hulu series. And I've talked about this on the podcast as well, uh, that I'm still working my way through. McCartney and producer Rick Rubin are sitting there just talking about the way, a lot of it was about the music and the way it was constructed during the Beatles era. And if you're not a Beatles fan, and if you're not even a McCartney fan, I still think people would find it interesting to examine um, the craftsmanship that goes into it by two guys, you know, Paul and talking about, of course, his writing partner, the late John Lennon, who didn't write music. I mean, they wrote tremendous music, but they didn't, they didn't put it down in musical notes and staff because they didn't know how to do that. Anyway, uh, the part I saw yesterday, it's a lot about George Martin, the producer, and it's pretty clear what an outsized role he played in the Beatles' success. So McCartney talked about the song yesterday, you know, absolute classic. It was just... Paul, uh, basically sung by Paul and his guitar. And George Ma- and he says that um, the tune, not the words, but the, the the melody came to him one day when he just woke up and that it was like magic. It was just somehow it discovered him. And George Martin wanted to add strings from an orchestra. And Paul said, no way, that's a terrible idea. And, and Martin said, well, just try it. And of course, that produced the classic version that McCartney liked and that we're all familiar with. It's been covered by what, you know, zillions of singers. Um, also the song A Day in the Life uh, you know I read the news today oh boy mostly written by John Lennon Paul wrote the middle eight from a pre-existing song um, McCartney said I want a full orchestra for that part of the end where it just all rises up into this incredible crescendo and you know George Martin said I don't you know we could probably yeah, that's 40 people we don't need a full orchestra McCartney insisted let's just try it and of course they kept that on the song as well. And one more little tidbit from this, which is, you know, the Beatles started out uh, playing um, in London, playing in Hamburg, as, as as most rock and roll bands of that era. They did covers. They did covers of uh, Little Richard and um, the Everly Brothers and B.B. King and, you know, whatever was cool and popular at the time. McCartney says they started to write songs. He, he and John started to write songs just to give themselves a break from doing all the covers and to be a little bit different from what everyone else was doing. Because if you were the second act and you had some song uh, and that you were covering and then the other band did it as well because they tended to do a lot of the same popular stuff, um, they wanted to distinguish themselves. So they wrote some of the early songs. Uh, and then, of course, their songwriting talents blossomed and along that, the Beatles, you know, changing musical history. All right. Let's get down to business here, number one. 
Uh, here's the aforementioned New York Times story. It's all about the rising anger. Now, of course, when I write and talk about it, I focused on the media, people like Don Lemon going on CNN saying that the unvaccinated are behaving in an idiotic fashion. And, you know, look, it doesn't take an advanced degree in human psychology to know that if you're attacking people who are not doing what you want, what you think is best for society, you're calling them morons, you're saying they're stupid, you're pointing the finger saying they're hurting everybody else, I don't think that's very likely to change their behavior. So the Times does a kind of a broader piece where they went out and actually interviewed people across America about the rising anger among vaccinated Americans against those who are refusing to get these shots or are hesitant for whatever reason. You know, we're talking about 100 million Americans here. So from today's papers, coronavirus cases resurge across the country, and I got to give you the number. It's either 55 or 56,000 new cases yesterday. Over the weekend, it was 50,000. Before that, it was 40,000. Before that, it was 30,000. It is getting to be a serious surge. And this, you know, I understand um, some of the cases are milder and so forth, but it is it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And in that, in that case, some of them go to the hospital. Some of them die. That's why the stakes are so important here. Um, so the vaccinated say the unvaccinated are neglecting a civic duty or clinging to conspiracy theories and misinformation. Uh, and here's the nub of it in the second paragraph. The country seemed to be exiting the pandemic barely a month ago. Yeah, it's true. We were all celebrating going outside, going to public places, not wearing masks. Now, many of the vaccinated fear for their unvaccinated children. You can't get this if you're under 12. And worry that they are at risk themselves for breakthrough infections. Breakthrough infections happen uh, when you've had both shots, or in the case of JJ, one shot. And you get it anyway. Now, you have a much milder case, but it's no fun. Uh, it can still make you feel like crap for a couple of days. Uh, rising case rates are upending plans for school and workplace reopenings. Uh, and this gets into the whole question of mandates. I mentioned yesterday in New York City, mandating all its municipal workers get vaccinated or show a negative COVID test. California, the nation's largest state, has now taken that step. The Veterans Administration yesterday became the first federal agency under President Biden to say all of its frontline health workers need to be vaccinated. And I have no quarrel with that because they're treating patients. And even a couple of quotes here from people interviewed by the Times. Uh, Jim Taylor, uh, retired civil servant, servant in Baton Rouge. It's like the sun has come up in the morning and everyone is arguing about it. Uh, Louisiana, by the way, fewer than half of adults are fully vaccinated. The virus is here and it's killing people, this guy says. We have a time-tested way to stop it and we won't do it. It's an outrage. Uh, contributing to uh, support for coercive measures, which I have mixed feelings about, as I said yesterday, because it will and is in the process of sparking a political backlash. Here's a teacher uh, in Portland, Oregon, saying, I've become angrier as time has gone on. He's got three kids who are too young to be vaccinated, and he's got a toddler with a serious health condition. Now there's a vaccine and a light at the end of the tunnel, and some people are choosing not to, wa not to walk toward it, this guy says. You are making it darker for my family and others like mine by making that choice. And I can understand that sentiment. There is a lot of frustration. It's insane. All these countries around the world are, 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 are struggling to get enough vaccines. We are awash in vaccines, finally. You know, Chris Cuomo on CNN, 
who had COVID, whose family members had COVID, uh, started calling it the Trump vaccine last night as a way of appealing to Trump supporters to take it. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Donald Trump's former White House press secretary running for governor of Arkansas, uh, wrote an op-ed piece, take the Trump vaccine. I personally don't care what you call it. I'm happy to give Donald Trump credit for Operation Warp Speed. Anyway, back to this piece. Uh, just the frustration is palpable. Here's a pastor uh, talking to members of his church saying, it is disappointing because I've tried to help them see their lives are in jeopardy and this is a serious threat to humanity and not making much progress. Here's a, almost what I think of as a bookended piece in National Review. So coming from the conservative side, Kevin Williamson looks at, well, is it really conservative since it's just fact, it's not the only reason, I want to say this again, as I said yesterday, black and Hispanic communities, much lower vaccination rates. Um, there are people who are have the kind of jobs where it's hard to take time off. Uh, there are just a lot of people who, for reasons having nothing to do with politics, have been very, very reluctant or outright refused to get the vaccine. But is this really, since more people who are identify as Republicans or are on the conservative side of the spectrum are mistrustful of government, are mistrustful of the media and refusing to get it, is it really a conservative position? So Kevin Williamson has a kind of historical view here. He says, the right, which has embraced theatrical self-harm as a kind of weird performance political ritual, is the political home of most, but by no, by no means all, vaccine skeptics. And he says mass skeptics, hydroxychloroquine, quackery, etc. Uh, conservatives, including many libertarian-leaning conservatives, he writes, traditionally have been comfortable with such measures as registering young people for possible military conscription and placing certain and limits on certain kind of business transactions or travel during emergencies at, or out of concern for national security. During World War I, the U.S. drafted three men for every two volunteers. And the generals set, sent 116,000 Americans to their deaths in the service of interests that were quite remote from our own national interests. We drafted 10 million for World War II. 2.2 million for Vietnam. It's a peculiar libertarian principle that accepts marching tens of thousands of Americans to their deaths, but balks at seeking to encourage wider vaccination by taking some active measure, presumably some measure short of the prison sentences given to draft resistors. And, you know, you talk about personal liberty, it's true. In the interest of the greater good, we don't have the draft today, thankfully. What we did for many generations, including during Vietnam, including during both world wars, including during Korea. Um, having conservatives, says Kevin Williamson, traditionally believe that a business has a right to manage affairs on its own terms. Conservatives, even, or some of them, even made this argument against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. How is it that the libertarian principle that bucks at requiring restaurants and hotels to serve African Americans somehow necessitates requiring the same businesses to serve people who, for whatever reason, fail to get themselves vaccinated. And one final line from this piece, un-American, George Washington ordered his troops to be inoculated against smallpox during the revolution. And by the way, after I uh, did the podcast yesterday, Piers Morgan, at least I saw a piece by Piers Morgan in the Daily Mail, 
in which he revealed that he has gotten COVID. He was vaccinated. He says it's been on the mild side, but very unpleasant. And he just absolutely rips into what he calls a lot of deluded, ill-informed, shamefully scaremongered, or simply complacent Americans who believe, or some of whom believe, insane conspiracy theories. Uh, Again, beating up on these people is not going to help you get any closer to your goal. And one final point here. Um, President Biden uh, was with the Iraqi prime minister, uh, taking, it's called the bilat. You take questions, a couple questions from each side. And Kelly O'Donnell of NBC News tried to ask Biden a question about the announcement by his VA secretary, Dennis McDonough, that his department will make COVID vaccines mandatory for the frontline health workers. Perfectly legitimate question. But Biden snapped at her. Here's what he said. You are such a pain in the neck. But I'm going to answer your question because we've known each other for so long. It has nothing to do with Iraq. Yes, Veteran Affairs is going to, in fact, require that all doctors working their facilities are going to have to be vaccinated. Well, I got to tell you, presidents for decades have been annoyed when they're appearing with a foreign leader, and particularly if they are overseas appearing with a foreign leader. And, you know, you get a limited number of questions to the American side when anything is asked about any domestic political issue that's not what they're there to discuss. But get over it. That's the way it works. I mean, in my book, Spin Cycle, about the Clinton White House and the press, um, Bill Clinton used to get really angry because he'd be, you know, in Russia or China or Japan or Britain, you know, trying to concentrate on world events. And he would inevitably be asked, because it was the news of the day, and the press didn't always have that much access to him, about some scandal that he was involved in, whether it was, you know, the the Monica Lewinsky scandal, Paula Jones, or the fundraising scandal, or whatever. It really made him mad. But he would answer the question, you didn't really have a choice. So there's nothing wrong with Nora O'Donnell's question. Yes, it didn't have to do with Iraq, but you don't, presidents don't get to say, okay, you can only ask about the thing that I want to talk about today. And I don't understand why Joe Biden, who gets pretty nice treatment from the press, keeps snapping at these reporters, including reporters he knows and presumably likes, because they are questioning him on something he doesn't want. All right, number two, the Olympics. Uh, Sad news on a number of fronts. Simone Biles, a phenomenal uh, Olympic gymnast, has now had to pull out from Team USA, USA Gymnastics. Uh, She pulled out in the middle of an event in Tokyo. Uh, Simone has withdrawn from the team, final completion due to a medical issue. She'll be assessed daily to determine medical clearance for future competitions. So she's out of the Olympics. And so many people were rooting for her just yesterday. And she talked a lot about the pain. I mean, you know, you gotta just feel for these young people. Years of training to get this one shot. You may never get again. That's something that only comes uh, up every four years. Um, And just yesterday, she posted on Instagram, I truly do feel like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders at times. I know I brush it off and make it seem like pressure doesn't affect me, but damn, sometimes it's hard. Also, Naomi Osaka, who so much wanted to represent her country in the Olympics in her home country and who lit the torch, uh, she was knocked out in the third round in the tennis competition. And she talked a little bit to the press, and she said, you know, it was impossible not to feel the pressure. And she lost to, like, the number 42 player in the country, and she got creamed. I mean, it was like 6'2", 6'1". And 
clearly she she just she, she had a lot of unforced errors. She just had trouble getting on track. And you can't separate it from the pressure. You know, we see these athletes perform in the U.S. Open or the British or Wimbledon. Uh, if it's tennis, and they seem just absolutely, you know, ice water in their veins and pervious to pressure, but they're human beings. And at the Olympics in Japan, representing Japan, Naomi Osaka couldn't get it done. And, you know, I've been critical of her for balking at answering press questions in, in France, but I was kind of rooting for her. I mean, I think she's a classy tennis player, and it's sad that this happened. Uh, Katie Ledecky lost. Of course, the American swimming phenomenon. She got a silver medal instead of a gold. We'll see how she does in the future matches. Also on the subject of the Olympics, Donald Trump weighing in uh, when, uh, I guess he was giving a rally on Saturday night, uh, holding a rally, and he encouraged the crowd in Phoenix to boo the U.S. women's soccer team. Uh, The political action committee Turning Point Action had sponsored this Protect Our Elections rally. And uh, Trump said, wokeism makes you lose. The U.S. women's soccer team is a very good example of what's going on, he said, and the crowd booed. Earlier this week, they unexpectedly lost to Sweden 3 to nothing, and Americans were happy about it, says the former president. People were laughing. Uh, here's what Megan Rapino, one of the stars of that team, said. She says, I know what's going on. I'm on social media. I'm not a hermit. She said that... Um, I always welcome criticism. She said this after the U.S. team bounced back by beating New Zealand. Uh, For women's sports, criticism in the media still needs to get better, so she feels like women are singled out. It does say to me people are watching the games and understand the importance of the games. Um, I don't mind that stuff. I think everything they said was right. We didn't play well. Sweden did get the better of us. And how, I got to talk about this, how about this robot? Toyota created this robot that can shoot the basketball. It's this seven foot tall robot and it was rolled out yesterday. You got to see this video if you haven't. So it, it picks up the ball. It's kind of like a human-like figure. Stood well behind the three-point line and boom, nailing three-pointers. And then it kind of has some limited mobility, kind of slides back to the half-court line, raises his arms, takes about 15 seconds to set up the shot, boom, sinks it from half court, 100% accuracy. Two years ago, an earlier version of this robot sank 2,023 throws consecutively. How does it do it? Artificial intelligence, it has sensors, it knows where the basket is, and figures out the precise angle and velocity needed to swish. In other words, the same way that people do it, except people are fallible. And somebody who's shot and shot a million baskets and, and missed maybe a half million of those, this this thing was amazing. On the other hand, could it fall vulnerable to a head fake? Could it guard anybody? I mean, it's a technological marvel, but I don't think we're going to see a robot team anytime soon. On the other hand, I could be wrong about that. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three. I saw this political headline uh, the other day, and I just had to laugh. Because I've saved you all a lot of time by not boring you to death with all the twists and turns of the infrastructure negotiations. Huffington Post, infrastructure deal on life support. I've been telling you for weeks and weeks and weeks it's on life support. And yet, you know, on Friday, you know, last week, Chuck Schumer wanted a test vote on this bipartisan package. Couldn't even get the test vote because Republicans opposed it. And then reporters went on the air, wrote pieces saying, well, okay, they didn't get that, but by Monday... 
by Monday they're going to reach this compromise. They've got enough Republican votes. It's a really good chance. They're on the verge of a deal. I mean, if I had five bucks for any time some journalist wrote, said, blogged, tweeted, on the verge of a deal, a deal is in sight, I mean, I could retire easily. And it's complete BS. There was never, they were never close to a deal. They never even figured out how to pay for it. Could there still be a deal, I suppose, theoretically? But when you've got a trillion-dollar bill and you can't even decide whether to raise taxes or whether to give the IRS more money and you don't even have a, a detailed bill that sees, shows exactly where the money goes, you haven't got a deal. You've got a, a wish list, really. So here's a piece in Politico. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he was fully committed to passing a bipartisan infrastructure bill this summer, but warned that more foot-dragging could require the Senate to stay in over the weekend. Over the weekend? Oh, my God. That's cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, Or cutting some of the upcoming August recess. Well, you know they don't want to do that. Schumer's warning came as the bipartisan negotiations entered their darkest phase in more than a month on Monday. With the parties openly feuding over policy, and Trump urging Republicans to drop the effort altogether. Now, why would the former president do that? He tried to get an infrastructure deal. It never got any way. He never actually introduced a bill or had a bill introduced on behalf of his White House. But um, he doesn't like the outlines of the deal. And he doesn't want to see Biden get credit. Schumer challenged Republicans on whether they would, quote, follow the absurd demands of a disgraced former president. Now, that's going to be a winning argument with the GOP. He urged uh, his Republican colleagues to ignore former President Trump. Trump said the GOP Republicans are absolutely being savaged by Democrats on the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill and said, wait until we take back the Senate in 2022 and retain, regain a strong negotiating stance. In other words, don't do anything. Don't make a deal. Use it as an issue in the midterms. The hell with, uh, you know, all the needs out there, roads, bridge, all the stuff that Trump said he wanted, right? But he doesn't like it. Look, you can object to it on lots of grounds. How do you pay for it? Is it too much money? The bipartisan bill is a trillion. I mean, the Democratic Reconciliation Bill, which I think is where this is going to end up with a lot of other stuff, is going to be trillions of dollars. The negotiations are more bleak than they have been in a month, says Politico. They've always been bleak. I guess, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of the reporters, but I guess when it's your beat and you cover the hill... You can't just say, okay, I'm not going to file a story today. Or I've got nothing to say on the air because the negotiations are going on. Nothing's really happening. No, you grab somebody in the hallway who says, well, I'm still confident that we can work it out because that's what members of Congress say. And you report it, but it's misleading. It's absolutely misleading. Could they, in the end, get a last-minute deal? Yeah, maybe. Doesn't look to me that way. And I've been saying this all along. Number four, big hearing today. I'll have a lot more to say about it tomorrow. There's been so much battling over the select committee on investigating the Capitol riot on January 6th, that you, you kind of lose sight of the fact that there actually is a committee. And today holds its first hearing, and in a very politically shrewd move, um, Nancy Pelosi's Democrats have decided that the first four witnesses today will be four police officers who dealt with the violence on January 6th. Um, and I don't care if you think the committee is a good idea, a bad idea, if you think they should look into Trump's role or not. Um, wherever you come down on this, you, you got to take off your hats to the bravery uh, of the overwhelmed Capitol Police and other uh, law enforcement officers 
who had to deal with the violence on that very dark day for our country. Um, now, I think a lot of what they're going to say you've heard before, but it'll obviously have a spotlight. I think there's going to be a lot of live coverage today of the hearing as it unfolds. And the politics of it are, I think the last time I talked about it, you know, Pelosi had tapped Liz Cheney, and then Pelosi, and I fault both sides here. I mean, she knew she was blowing this, blowing this thing up when she told Kevin McCarthy, okay, you name five people, I'm knocking out two of them, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. They don't believe in this. I don't want them on the committee. And, and McCarthy said, okay, fine. I'll pull all my members. And then Nancy Pelosi gets the other pro-impeachment House Republican, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, to serve on the committee. And so there's a lot of bad blood there. Liz Cheney's going to get a starring role today in terms of speaking. And probably, I mean, it makes sense for them to put forward a Republican. So they can say, look, this is not a partisan committee. We've got the um, former number three House Republican, the daughter of the former Republican Vice President of the United States. And she's on the committee, and so is Kinzinger. So McCarthy was asked about this by a reporter, and he asked about the two of them. He says, oh, they're Pelosi Republicans. I guess that's a really big insult from the GOP side. But it is true. They both accepted the appointment by the opposition speaker of the House. Um, Both of them said McCarthy's comments were childish. So you got open warfare here. Uh, Here's Liz Cheney saying we got serious business. Kinzinger, McCarthy can call me whoever he wants. I'm a Republican. Uh, Will McCarthy follow through on his threat to strip them of other committee assignments? We'll see. I don't think that's going to happen, but, you know, he might want to send a message. Uh, more importantly, how, how will, the, uh, will this be a fair investigation, as the Democrats are pledging? Can it really be bipartisan when you only have Pelosi-approved Republicans on the committee? And what, if any, new information will they dig up? And so that will be the question going forward. And finally, number five, uh, Ronnie Jackson, you may recall, was Donald Trump's personal physician in the White House. And, you know, he got a lot of ridicule because he would come out after every physical, say, Donald Trump's an incredible specimen of a human being, and despite the fact that the president, whether you like him or not, was overweight and um, a little bit challenged in that area. Uh, now he's a congressman. Uh, he went to Texas. He won the seat as a Republican. And uh, he has said the other day, that he believes President Biden will resign because of his limited cognitive abilities. I said this on Sean Hannity's show. I got to say, as a doctor, he must know what an irresponsible thing that is to say because he hasn't examined Joe Biden. And it's, you know, it's a purely, probably popular in his Texas district. Oh, Biden's uh, senile, Biden's cognitive impairment. He can't look at what he did in the, in the uh, CNN town hall. He had trouble getting his words out. Okay, the President of the United States is 78 years old. He still occasionally has a stutter. But I've seen him take questions for an hour, an hour and a half. I've seen him in debates. Um, you can't do that if, you, if, you have, if you're mentally impaired. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Jackson going off, there's something seriously going on with this man right now. I think that he's either going to resign, they're going to convince him to resign from office, at some point in the near future for medical issues, or they're going to have to use the 25th Amendment to get rid of this man right now. Look, anybody can say anything they want. And certainly, you know, liberal commentators, when Donald Trump was president, would diagnose him with all kinds of mental illnesses, sociopath, narcissist, and so forth. You know, these are people who are not doctors, to say the least. Because they didn't like the guy. 
Uh, and again, you're fair game for any kind of criticism. But I just think politically, the idea that Joe Biden, you know, who's remains over 50 percent approval rating, so he not only won the presidency, but he must be doing something right. He's gets high marks on handling of the coronavirus. Um, there are also areas in which he doesn't get high marks, um, such as hailing the border. And the surge in the Delta variant and the great slowdown in the vaccination program is going to cause political problems for President Biden. So six months from now, he may not have to have these high approval ratings. It all depends on how much the economy is affected, I would say. But here you have Dr. Jackson going off, making these pronouncements. Biden has lost it and so forth and so on. Oh, uh, he also tweeted something. He's completely lost it. Needs a cognitive exam now. Yeah, he has the standings to say. And then this is the funny part. He pointed to the fact that Donald Trump took a cognitive exam. I think this was after he had COVID. And aced the test, 30 out of 30. Well, do you remember the questions in that? Remember Chris Wallace on Fox questioning Donald Trump? And, and and Wallace says he himself took the test and they show you a picture of an elephant and you say, what is it? Oh, it's an elephant. And Trump came back and said, oh, that was the man, woman, TV, camera, person thing that you had to memorize five words in a certain order and then, then some other questions that would go by and then you had to come back and memorize it. And it just, you know, it was designed to show that you had a functioning IQ, not that you were a genius. Um, could, can Joe Biden identify an elephant? Can he memorize five words? It's just so fascinating. And by the way, it isn't that Ronnie Jackson is an angel. I don't want to overly beat up on him, but there was a DOD Inspector General's report about his, his review, a review of his time as White House physician, concluded that he made sexual and denigrating comments about a female subordinate, that he violated the policy for drinking alcohol while on a president, presidential trip, that he took prescription strength sleeping medication that prompted concern from colleagues. Um, he disputed a lot of that, but it's just part of his record. Uh, look, he's a member of Congress to say whatever he wants. Uh, I know a lot of Republicans have doubts about President Biden's abilities. I think a lot of that is fueled by partisanship. And I just think it's not a winning argument. You know, Joe Biden has been around forever. And even the people who, many of the people who disagree with his policies vehemently, who think he's moved sharply to the left, who think that even though he ran as a relative moderate in the primaries, he's now doing a pretty good imitation of Bernie Sanders, kind of like the guy. And they don't think... He doesn't have the mental capability to do the job. Now, obviously, there's three and a half years left in his term, and he is at a somewhat advanced age, our oldest president. But I just think it's irresponsible to make these charges, and I don't think it gets them anything politically. So there. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll try to keep coming up with things that will enlighten you before you read it in the MSM or hear it on the news. Uh, Some places you can get the podcast. On your Amazon device, on Amazon Music, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple iTunes. See you tomorrow with more buzz. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.